We're in the book of James, the letter of James, toward the end of your New Testament. We're in chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. What is James, the brother of our Lord, the bishop of the church at Jerusalem in that first generation, what is he saying to us in these few verses? Well, the thing that he tells us to do is to boast. To boast. Now, typically we think of boasting as a negative thing, a vice, not a virtue. We hear a lot of it in this presidential campaign season. We hear so many people telling us of their accomplishments and their capabilities and their ambitions, and we hear a lot of boasting. Um, There's a measure of expectation there that we would expect to hear from them. My mother used to tell me when I was a kid that whoso tooteth not his own horn, the same shall not be tooted. And so you kind of have to speak up for yourself from time to time. You have to sort of say, I'm proud of this, I'm proud of that. And that's really what the word means. Boast, it means it's something you're proud of, something you can glory in, something you can take a certain amount of uh, distinction and say, whatever else I am, at least I'm this. And you can have a boast. And so there is a positive side to boasting. We're all aware of the negative side, which is very narcissistic, self-centered, gratuitous and self-serving, and a little bit off-putting to hear someone boast just a little too much. But there is a right way to boast, and it literally means to take pride and to take a certain amount of satisfaction. And the word is even used in some of the older texts, it's translated rejoice. And then we see that word often in the New Testament, and it means it's something we can really uh, embrace and be excited about, something, the gift that's been given to us or an attribute that we have or something that we can really boast about. And that's what we're being called to do here is to boast. Uh, Just a quick reminder, it's not of that good sense in which boasting is an, uh, an okay thing to do. You remember the Apostle Paul after all that he went through in the book of Galatians, speaking to the church there in Galatia about all the things that they needed to hear, some difficult things. Uh, He says at the very end of the book, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says he's not going to boast, but if he has something he can take pride in, 
if there's something that He can rejoice in, if there's something He can glory in, it is the cross of Christ. And He speaks of the cross as a double crucifixion. He's been crucified to the world. The world's been crucified to Him. He is dead to the world. And He's proud of that. He's grateful for that. He'll mention that every time he gets a chance. He'll boast about that. The actual background for all of the boasting is even the word of the Lord that comes from the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. And that's germane to our text today. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So there is a virtuous boasting, a justifiable boasting. And that's what we're urged to do. Now we need just a little bit of admonition and exhortation as to how we go about this boasting and who we are and how it's to be done. And he addresses in this text two people. The lowly brother and the rich. And this is sort of about as close as you're going to get in the Greek language, to a parallelism. In other words, one thing is said and then something comes along parallel to it that says either similar or the opposite. And this is a feature of Hebrew wisdom and poetry. In the Old Testament, in fact, most of the Proverbs are written in a parallel couplet where there's two things. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And over and over and over you see it in, in the, in the uh, Old Testament. Uh, it's interesting, just a little side note uh, for those of you who like this sort of thing. The, uh, the book of James is written in very excellent Greek. Very well-constructed, good um, uh, Koine Greek. Um, yet James was, of course a Jew, and lived in Palestine all of his life, and as far as we know, never got too far from Jerusalem in the latter part of his life. And no doubt spoke Aramaic and thought, here's the critical thing, James as well as Jesus and the other disciples thought in Hebrew. They thought in the ancient language of the scriptures, which were in Hebrew. But they had been translated, of course, into the Greek, the Septuagint, the work of the 70. And so they, had, they lived in kind of two worlds. They spoke in Greek, but their construction and their thought pattern would be along Old Testament Hebrew lines. And that's kind of what we have here. We have this book is kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament, as it's called in your ESV introduction there. And we, I think we're, what we're looking at is one of those. We're having one of those Proverbs. By the way, the book of Proverbs speaks in quite a few verses. 
in several passages over the whole book, things about the rich man and riches. The scriptures talk about riches in terms of how you get it, how you use it, and what's your heart attitude toward riches. How do you acquire riches? There's a right way and a wrong way. How do you use and utilize and expend your riches? There's a God-honoring way and an abominable way. And then, what's the attitude of your heart toward your riches and your relationship to your riches? The book of Proverbs is filled with this. And I think that forms the background probably of what James is going to tell us here. Because he knows the biblical or the Old Testament scriptural view of riches. And he builds upon that in giving us this exhortation. Now the, the command is to boast. And he calls first of all upon the lowly brother. And it's interesting that it's brother, lowly brother. So this is a, an exhortation to believers. And due to the parallelism, it's probably understood that the next line, verse 10 there, the rich brother is also in consideration. That's we can sort of supply the brother. So we're not talking about the poor being the godly and the rich being the ungodly. That is not the frame here and it's not the framework anywhere in Scripture actually. So he's speaking to Christians. In fact, we know there were rich Christians in that first generation because that's how so much of the, the church was established by the generous gifts of very wealthy people. And we know some of these people by name. Our, Joseph Arimathea was one. Barnabas was another who had property and wealth and contributed it to the work and laid it at the disciples' feet. And we know something about the, the socioeconomic structure of the early church in Jerusalem. It covered the whole spectrum, or maybe the spectrum should be vertical, top to bottom. The very wealthy, some very wealthy people, and then some very, very poor and impoverished people. And by the time James was written, the church in Jerusalem had undergone a very severe depression economically because all of Judea, in fact, all of Palestine was in a depression. There was about three or four years there when there was a drought and there was no crops made hardly in the land. And so it was, it was very difficult. And we know even from the writings of the Apostle Paul that he took up collections when he traveled to Thessalonica and to other places in, uh, in his missionary journey. He took a collection and brought it along with some men who brought that offering from the eastern Mediterranean world back to Jerusalem to help the poor saints that were there. So we know that socioeconomics covered the whole spectrum in the, in the early church. And, and James even mentions in this text, he has two more paragraphs in the book of James where he's going to speak about rich and the riches, the wealthy. And in one case, he's talking about those who come into the meeting, part of the fellowship, part of the, the church there in Jerusalem. So let's not confuse ourselves and think that only poverty marks the Christian. Wealth as well marks the Christian. So James is speaking now to the lowly brother. And usually that's speaking of the poor, 
That's often paralleled in the, in the Old Testament. But it also can speak of the socially down, the downtrodden. It's the same word that's used, you remember, where Mary in her prayer, when she prays to the Lord, when she realizes she's going to have the Christ child, that she pours out her heart to the Lord, following Hannah's prayer in the Old Testament about the lowly handmaiden of the Lord has been favored by being exalted to be the mother of the Messiah. And so it's just not only poverty, but it is a low social standing. And it is a status that most people are self-conscious concerning. You know whether you're poor and lowly in the society or whether you are more elevated, wealthy, more prominent, more powerful in the society. Most people understand their socioeconomic position in a culture, in a society. And it affects so many things in your life where you came from, where you're going, how you're going to get there, what you could do with limited resources, uh, the virtues and vices that intersect with poverty and wealth. Being poor in many ways is good for you. Good for you. Makes you work, makes you strive. Keeps you out of trouble. Poverty, on the other hand, sometimes can be debilitating, frustrating. It can be absolutely impossible to get your head above water. All sorts of causes, pro and con. But when you're there, you know you're there. Here's what James wants us to do. He wants us to not think primarily of our socioeconomic status, but he wants us to think of our spiritual status. Not what we are in and of our birth and our circumstances of life, but who we are in relationship to God. So the brother, the Christian, the sister, the church member, the believer has a ground for boasting. And it's not in his wealth, obviously. Not in a social standing, obviously, but it's in the Lord. It's in the Lord. When a poor person who doesn't have a lot of this world's goods and may be standing in a place of menial employment and reduced social standing has a possession a treasure, an inheritance in Christ that is immeasurable. The word for exaltation is the same word that's used in the exaltation of Christ. His resurrection, His ascension. It's the lifting up. Let the poor brother not 
think and concentrate and see himself as that one that is me, having the menial goods of life. Don't look at the paucity of his lifestyle, but rather look to Christ and the riches of glory, the riches of heaven, the splendor of heaven. Get his identity there. Move it to a spiritual plane. Take it to a place where your self-image and your self-reckoning is grounded upon that which God has bestowed upon you. You're a child of the King. You're an heir to all the riches of glory and a joint heir with Christ in the kingdom of God. It's something to be proud of. Something to be grateful for. Something to build upon. When you understand your spiritual, true standing. Then the verse 10, the second part of the, the parallelism of the proverb is the rich. Let the rich boast, let the rich brother, sister, boast in his humiliation. The rich person enjoys his wealth. Along with that, a certain amount of security. Money can't buy everything, but money can buy a whole lot. And money can buy just about everything you need to be fairly comfortable. And if there's enough money, you feel pretty secure. Because money, enough money over a shorter period of time, you make it. You don't run out of it. There's not many of us that are trust funded. But those that are have it. And that too is a recognition. You've got to recognize that you were born on third base and you thought you hit a triple. you got to recognize you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth and all the other expressions. Recognize that it came to you not from any of your own effort or deserts, but your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather and mother, whatever the, the inheritance picture and structure is. They achieved. Maybe they had it from way back. Maybe you come from the royal heads of Europe. Maybe you come from the great conglomerates of colonial America. Maybe you're descended from Jonathan Edwards. You know, whatever great bestowal you have is the benefit from God. But in spiritual terms, you're as impoverished, as needy, as broken as unworthy as the vilest sinner and the poorest person on the planet. You have no standing before God. You have nothing to offer Him. You are helpless and hopeless and absolutely stripped naked in your poverty before the Lord. And a reckoning of that, a realization of that, puts you in a place where you can be proud and grateful of that humility. Because it's that humility that brings you to repentance. It's that humility that brings you to the foot of the cross. It's that humility that causes you to call upon someone else and not look to what you have in your bank account or in your treasure for yourself. 
and you have a genuine need, a desperate need for Christ and salvation. And the Lord has graciously, wondrously given you the exact same treasure that the poor brother has received. And that on a spiritual plane, you stand on the same level. You're the same in the eyes of God. You're a sinner, helpless, saved by grace, glorious. How do you see yourself? Now notice what he says here. He talks about the riches for just a moment. He says, the flower of the grass... He will pass away. He admonishes the rich just a little bit, reminding them that all flesh is grass, that the, that the, the span of life is but a vapor. He'll say that later on, that what you have is so temporary and passing It's like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, the beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The word pursuits here means his business. And it can be his lifestyle. It was while you're in the midst of pursuing that which accumulates this wealth. It is all transient. He reminds us of where the real spiritual value lies. Now, as I've said before, and this is one of the things I'm enjoying in this study of James, is to see if I can hear anything, and the commentaries aren't much help, and I may be kind of on a, on a, a little bit of my own peculiar mission here, but I want to hear the echoes of Jesus' teaching in James's letter. And can you, can you begin to hear them? Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember rich man living in opulent splendor and dining on sumptuous fare? And then the poor man Lazarus that sat at the table with a grave dermatological disorder and a horrible, horrible existence, and ate the crumbs that fell. But in spiritual terms, and in eternity, when the two men die, they go to different places. You hear Jesus' parable on that? Listen to Jesus' parable talking here in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, the, the, the chapter on many parables. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. 
He takes everything he has to buy the field because it's not the field he wants. It's the treasure. It's the treasure he's found in the field. And he gives everything for it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. There is a treasure that is worth everything. There is a pearl of great price that is worth everything you have. And this is, the, is where we are pushed to be. Here's what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? Where is the real value? It's in Christ. The rich man that has Christ is wealthy beyond compare. The poor man that has Christ, wealthy beyond compare. The rich man that has Christ, rich beyond compare. The same, the common. It all focuses on Christ. Our whole spiritual standing is on Christ. Matters not whether you're rich or poor or in the broad middle, in the fat part of the bell curve. It's Christ. What will it profit you if you gain the world and lose your soul? Or, that's an admonition to the rich, but here's one to the poor. What would you give in exchange for your soul. It's Christ. Come to Him. Have Him. Possess Him. And in Him we have the treasures of heaven. So if you're poor, be proud that in Christ you have all you need. And if you're rich, remember, that in Christ is all you need.